Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Monday, December 27th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm back at 100%. So we're going to bring you the best of 2017. You probably have heard this everywhere, the best of 2017. We want to be a little more specific. We want to address the gaps that everyone else's best of 2017 coverage causes. And here's the reality of all these best of 2017 lists. The rest of the media go on vacation and they make the list so they don't have to work. So they ignore this week. And also, if they're submitting their lists or if their lists are airing today or they submitted them last week, they're missing out on all the best stuff that happens today and yesterday and Christmas and the day before. So what I'm doing is I'm giving you the best of these last four days of 2017. The best of the almost a week since Sunday. That is my pledge to you. The biggest international story, December 23rd to 27th, specifically edition, Myanmar. Myanmar was called out by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson for participating in ethnic cleansing. Good on Rex. Now that was pre-December 23rd. Because post-December 23rd, the Myanmar military, some of the very same troops carrying out the ethnic cleansing, has been invited to participate in joint U.S.-Thai military exercises. All right, guys, okay. We're going to train you to be elite fighters, to be killing machines. But if you please would not apply that on the Rohingya. Plea honor system, guys. You got it? I don't want to see you guys acting out on all this stuff we told you. Don't be smirched the good name of the junta that originally put you in power. All right? Live up to what the junta stands for. We're going to teach you. Grab the gun. Hold it this way. Fire it more lethally in this manner. But don't do it on the Rohingya. Thank you. Junta Pride. The least shared article of 2017, New York Times, European Forum looks at productivity. Subhead, the European Central Bank will host a discussion focused on automation investment that happened a few months ago. I just wanted to pass along the least shared story of 2017. I've done, uh, I've done some research and analysis. What are some of the other least shared stories around the internet from famous sites, you know, social media getting so big, everyone sharing stories, stories catching fire, stories that the old gatekeepers would not even be able to tell would be of interest. Well, here are some phrases you could put in your story if you have a website or perhaps an, a national broadcaster like the BBC or the CBC, put this phrase in your story or in your headline and no one will share it. Shadow cabinet. Open letter, non-binding agreement, non-binding agreement in principle, preliminary ruling, merger of equals. And now the best political story of 2017, well, December 24th through 27th, it's the Virginia State coin flip. What is going on? Well, it's not going to be a coin flip, but there's a Senate race, control of the Senate will be determined by who wins this race. And at first the Republican one and the Democrat run one, now it looks like a tie. And they're going to decide the race by a a drawing of lots. Now, that seems fair enough. All right, you flip a coin. No, no. They're debating and dickering exactly how to construct this drawing of lots, this game of chance. 
they're going to go with, it would seem, two canisters of different film colors in an opaque bowl or box. And the, th- the reason you need film canisters is there are a lot lying around, so no one uses them anymore. But also you need a uniform item because it was once proposed that Scrabble letters be drawn out of a bag, but then someone said, no, you could feel it, and a Z could feel a little different from an A. There was a New Mexico election where each candidate got 6,247 votes exactly, and it was decided they would go with a game by lot. One suggestion was five-card stud. But the Democrats said, if we go with five-card stud, what if no one has a pair? What if we both have the same high card? What if I lost my election by a jack? Now, it seems to me that once an election is tied, which happens every few years, but not that often, there are a lot of elections in America, we get really, really obsessive about fairness. We're not going to let a game of chance occur that isn't totally and completely fair. But if the election isn't tied, like every single other election, except these few exceptions, we're much less concerned with the details. Like, hey, will there be a uh, paper ballot after we do electronic voting? Yeah, who knows? Uh, well, will Diebold, the maker of most of these voting machines, you know, they're big political donors. Will they be audited? Nah, it'll be okay. Well, you know, voter ID laws could disenfranchise blacks and Hispanics disproportionately. Yeah, but I don't see why they should. No, no, no. We've got lots of studies showing that they do. Yeah, I'd rather not read them. Doesn't seem like much of a concern to me. Also, just the whole idea of when should we have this election? Let's do it on a Tuesday. And let's not let anyone off of work. That would be a good way to run an election. It seems like our actual elections are run by, I don't know, a drunk pensioner. Ah, just put it anywhere. Whereas once there is a tie, we gather NASA physicists all wearing jeweler's loops to make sure everything goes perfectly. It seems to me we're much more comfortable having an elected official take office because, eh, it was rainy, than possibly letting someone sneak in if they've demonstrated an ability to read the Z and the N scrabble differently, like situational braille. Can't have that guy getting into office, but having a whole election based on a random day as governed by pretty arbitrary laws. Yeah, that's fine. And that, my friends, that makes the list of the least resonant complaints of 2017. On the show today, Vlad Putin, what a lucky guy. But first, yes, the Christmas, the actual day of Christmas has come and gone. But that doesn't mean craft making and glitter have to fall by the wayside. Now head down to the Hobby Lobby, buy a glue gun, and in doing so, support a reactionary political force seeking to turn the U.S. into a soft theocracy. Ooh, look, it sparkles when the sun hits it just right. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect. 
via your passions in life, it is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. The Lord works in mysterious ways. There was the covenant of Moses, whereon God gave the commandments to the Israelites and called him his chosen people. And from then they learned... And Christ was born in Bethlehem, cut to Kansas. A poor preacher's son is screwing around with frames at a kitchen table. It's all part of the plan. That man, a member of the Green family, said these frames could sell. And in doing so, could spread the word of the Lord. Thus was born the Hobby Lobby. And from that, a few years later, eh, some uh, international tax problems and an effort to influence the American electoral system. Bible Nation, the United States of Hobby Lobby, is the new look into this store, this family that's fascinating. It is co-written by Joel Baden and Candida Moss, and Candida is here with me. Hello. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. So I only knew, I'm not a hobbyist. I don't scrapbook. So only I only knew about Hobby Lobby from Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, which is when they uh, took on the government's mandate that they cover reproductive health. But they were a big player in politics before that, right? That's right. They sort of burst onto the scene in 2014. But before then, they were behind the scenes giving a lot of money to philanthropic causes. They were, in fact, the largest Christian philanthropic organization in the United States. And they had been posting advertisements all around the United States at uh, Christmas and Easter and Independence Day, talking about how this is a country that was founded on the Bible and on Christian principles. And and it's true. They weren't doing it to get press for Hobby Lobby. They weren't saying Hobby Lobby is sponsoring this colloquium on Christianity. They were using the Hobby Lobby money to fund their Christianity rather than the other way around, it seems. That's absolutely right. They are the real deal. They are evangelicals. They are believers. There's nothing sort of hypocritical or sort of surreptitious that's trying to happen here. Right. And in fact, they made a decision early on, the family did, to close the stores on Sunday. How they decided was kind of interesting. And they kind of rolled it out slowly and it wasn't going well at first. But then when it did, they took that as proof that it was the Lord's plan all along. That's right. They started with states that only had a few stores and closed them there. And by the time they were done with Texas, which had the most stores, then their profits took off again. And they interpret that as a sign that they had won God's favor. It seems like there are so many instances in your book where that wouldn't be the accurate interpretation or even the logical interpretation or even an interpretation that, you know, a reasonable person, anyone approaching a reasonable person would have. But they always interpret everything as telling them that they're right and God's on their side. That's right. And, you know, if you look at the Hobby Lobby family, the Greens, yeah. they've been enormously successful. They, and they won- came from nothing. They came from nothing. They won this incredible lawsuit that I think a lot of people thought was not going to pass. And they have been tremendously financially successful despite doing things like closing their stores. So you could see why Mm -hmm. they think that they are being guided by God. And so you could see why when it comes to influencing religion in America, they would think that they were well positioned for that. So what is their brand or branch of evangelical Christianity? 
Well, in terms of what kind of Christians are they? They're evangelicals. They're also fundamentalists, which means that they think that everything in the Bible is accurate and true. They read the King James Version. They are also social conservatives. They give a lot of money to protect so-called traditional marriage, and they do that behind the scenes. And they're exactly what people think of when they think of uh, conservative evangelicals in America. They certainly don't hate manga, but they hold all the kinds of religious and political positions you might expect. Now, David Green is not a minister. He's not. He's a son of ministers, and right. he apparently has felt really bad that he didn't become a minister. And this is all about him sort of fulfilling that goal that he never personally took on. When did they start trying to influence public policy? It's an interesting question. So the way that they tell it in their PR campaign surrounding their lawsuit, they only started um, when they were dragged into the public eye by the big bad government. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you go back and look at what they were doing, they certainly started in the mid-2000s. Their political activism has started with the rise in their popularity. And so in the last uh, election, every single potential Republican candidate for president except Trump went to Oklahoma City to try and win their endorsement. And it's not just about money. It's about the fact that they are heroes mm -hmm. to American evangelicals. And so when David Green writes an op-ed, as he did shortly before the election, saying you have to vote for Trump, that has an impact. I want to get to the artifacts because you deal with that a lot. But tell me about the Museum of the Bible, which is just feet off the National Mall and maybe even would convince some visitors to Washington, D.C. that it's a part of the Smithsonian or endorsed by the government. That's right. When you go there, it's very, very close. And we just visited. And when you go to the top, you can see the key political buildings in American government right. from the top of this museum. And you're so close to the Smithsonian that you do feel that you're part of just the museum complex of Washington, D.C. And it's huge. It's the world's largest Bible museum. But what's strange about it when you go there is the way in which they exclude so much. There's actually a whole floor that has this bizarre Renaissance art exhibit that has almost nothing to do with the Bible at all. So they had a lot more space to do things. And yet when you visit it, what you really get is the story of the Bible in America, very little discussion of the rest of the world, a bunch of completely unexplained old books that really are supposed to tell you the Bible has been the same throughout history. And then you get these animated films of the Bible story, yeah. which are very short and very selective. And what is the, they don't call it the Green Institute anymore, but it is propped up, this museum and much of the Greens and the Hobby Lobby's uh, activities are propped up by a quote-unquote scholarly institute. What is mm -hmm. that? So it's now called the Scholars Initiative, and mm -hmm. almost everyone in it is an evangelical. What Steve Green said to us was, we had to hire these scholars to tell us what we had. Mm -hmm. We had bought all this stuff and we couldn't read it and we needed scholars to tell us, but we needed the kinds of scholars who would be supportive of our mission and our religious beliefs. So they were brought on board to identify things. But in doing so, of course, they raised the value of the Green family's personal collection. Right. So they would authenticate it. They would mm -hmm. say it's real. Mm -hmm. How's their track record, these scholars? Well, they did. They've published one volume of artifacts so far. It was Dead Sea Scrolls, sort of you know, very appealing set of artifacts, very sexy topic. And they published those. And then the rest of the academic community said, these look like fakes. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many scholars who have said they're all fakes. Why would you buy these? Why didn't you ask people? And the crazy thing is those Dead Sea Scrolls are still on display at the Green Family's sponsored museum in in D.C. And when you say the rest of the academic community, you're not necessarily talking about, you know, some snooty non-believer from an Ivy League school. I mean, Vatican experts, like endorsed by the church, devout experts say, sorry, we'd like them to be true. They're just not true. That's right. And a whole swathe of scholars, Jews, Roman Catholics, Protestants, other evangelicals have said, these are not the real deal. Um, Just as many evangelical historians have come out against the museum and said, I believe everything the Greens believe, but the story they're telling about the Bible isn't true. (laughs) I'm sorry to laugh. No, I'm not. Um, So let's get into the artifacts. They bring artifacts into America. If you want biblical artifacts, they're not going to be found in Topeka. You got to go and get them from Israel or Iraq or Iran. And artifacts are artifacts and they're covered by law. And your your reporting and others have shown that the Greens have been violating this law or the, some of these laws. That's correct. So if you want to bring an artifact here to the United States, you need to prove a legal chain of ownership that goes back to 1970. And the reason for that is if you think of all of the political upheaval that we've seen in the Middle East in particular, so many things were stolen and looted. And when they were stolen and looted and sold, that money has been used to finance war and terrorism. So this is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Many of the artifacts that the Greens purchased, including a lot of 10,000 clay tablets, had no history like that. So they were shipped here to the United States. They weren't even declared. And so they were fined for that and they have to repatriate those. But there are other artifacts in their collection that don't seem to have any kind of documented legal history. And that means that those artifacts are, we call them illicit, and that Mm -hmm. they should not have been brought to this country. And that when people purchase artifacts like this, they are indirectly helping create a market that funds terrorism. So when you do talk to them and you ask them about the ethics, for instance, of the artifacts, how do they justify it? Well, it's really interesting. I want to preface this by saying that all of the Green family members I've met are just incredibly charming and sincere people. And they're the kind of people you would totally want to have brunch with. When we asked Steve Green... I don't know. I like a boozy brunch, but that's just me. <laughs> you might, yeah, you might have that problem. Um, when we asked Steve Green, are there illicit artifacts in your collection? This is before we broke the news mm-hmm. of the federal investigation. He admitted that there probably were. He didn't admit that there was an investigation. And then when he tried to explain how this had happened... He said, well, this is like this one time that Hobby Lobby inadvertently infringed on copyright and we had to pay a fine and we learned our lesson. And now we have a design company within the Hobby Lobby network. It's just like that. Well, it is and it isn't like that Mm -hmm. Uh, um, because people actually die um, when it comes to black market antiquities. And you can never actually just like replace the history of the past. Once it's destroyed, it's destroyed. Whenever you do this, you are perpetuating the market. And no one has done more to perpetuate that market than the Greens. And just because they think it's a business decision doesn't mean that it's not a very serious legal issue. So how powerful are the Greens in the secular world? Fine. They could do whatever they want with their so-called tablets or Dead Sea Scrolls. But how might they affect my life? 
Yeah, you might think if I just don't go to the museum and don't yeah. read their books. Yeah, shop what, at Michael's instead of Hobby Lobby. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you should care because this is the family that has changed the way we look at contraception. This is the family that's trying to put their Bible curriculum into public schools in America. They're getting any toehold as far as that goes? They haven't given up, but you'll notice if you go back and you look at the Republican Party platform that for the first time the Republican Party was talking about doing this in mm-hmm. the last election. So that was it seems like now under the current administration they might get further with that and they are rolling out that Bible curriculum around the world as we speak to private schools in the UK, to schools in Israel, and they plan more Bible museums. And they are simultaneously funding a lot of legislative activity that wants to roll back the clock on things like prayer in public schools, uh, marriage equality, things like that. And they're not going to give up um, because this is a religious calling for them. So how could they possibly? So you might think, I'm just not going to go to Museum of the Bible. But I think what we wanted to show in the book is, despite their PR, they really are the religious equivalents of the Koch brothers. Yeah. So if you worry about them, and especially if you have children to educate, you should worry about the Green family. And and I just want to make this clear. The engine for all of this is the profitability of their stores. So shopping there, you're giving via a couple of steps, you're directly giving to these efforts. Yeah, as you are when you buy any product that's associated with political or religious legislation with which you don't agree. Yes, but I would say with Hobby Lobby, it's a little bit more, even though Chick-fil-A has similar religious beliefs, they're not out there trying to affect the culture to quite the degree that Hobby Lobby is. That's right. Maybe they're not as good at it. Yes, if you were unwilling to eat food from Chick-fil-A, because of the religious positions of its owners, you certainly shouldn't want to buy from Hobby Lobby. So during the Bush administration, I think a lot of people learned about the power of the religious right. And then Obama was uh, president for eight years, seems to have quieted that concern. And then comes Donald Trump, who, you know, claims to be a Christian. And I know that many Christian groups endorsed him, but he just seems to be a repudiation of what the evangelical community espouses. How does Hobby Lobby or what does the rise of Hobby Lobby say about the fact that Trump is the man who won the presidency? I think the really interesting thing that happened in the Obama years is that you could have tremendously powerful Christian groups and families with a lot of money and power start to feel that they were under attack. And we all, we've all heard about the war on Christmas. But the amazing thing was that the steps that were taken by the Obama administration confirmed the sense among the religious right that they were marginalized here in America. And when you feel like you're under attack, you're persecuted, you strike back powerfully. And without nuance, without the desire to really like check something out. So if you then have someone who seems to be lining up with the things that you hold dearest, which in the case of the evangelical right is really unborn infants, then it doesn't matter about the rest. Not everyone has to be on board. There's a display in Museum of the Bible that actually talks about David and how he was morally King David of the Bible, how he's morally compromised, but how he became God's servant. And that's sort of how they look at Trump. It's an amazing analogy, but that's sort of what's going on here. 
Kendita Moss is co-author of Bible Nation, the United States of Hobby Lobby. She is also the Edward Cadbury Professor of Theology at the University of Birmingham. And yes, I looked it up. That is the grandson of the chocolate Cadbury, correct? That is correct. Thank you, Kendita. Thank you. And now the spiel. I sometimes think it would be interesting if one of the superhero movies, or just a comic book, concerned itself with a superhero actually running for office. Yes, I know. I'm going to get it. Uh, in uh, Spider-Man versus Octo. Who's the octopus guy? Doc Octopus. There was a mention that Mr. Fantastic would run. For, it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't want to know reality. I'm just, let's tease this out. What would happen if a superhero ran for office? Now, mostly it doesn't happen because it's just a sweeter gig to be Captain America than the actual Captain of America. And if they did, imagine the debates, imagine the opponent of the superhero. My opponent, while possessing super hearing and otherworldly strength, is plainly not hearing the complaints of the voters in this district whose heavy tax burden can't be lifted like he once lifted Galactus in the Battle of the Planet Ta. And imagine the negative ads they'd buy against a superhero. Wonder Woman says her magic lasso only tells the truth. Yet she won't explain why she missed votes in the 2017 legislative session. Battling evil? Uh-huh. What about the evils of MS-13? They're here. And they're evil. Wonder Woman opposed funding the F-18, making America weaker. That's one jet you made invisible, Wonder Woman. But there's actually a country that has a superhero as president. Did you know this? And his superpower is super luck. And that is a real superpower, by the way. Some superheroes actually have super luck. This is from the Marvel Superhero Database, and it's about a superhero named Longshot. Longshot has genetically engineered hollow bone structure, superhuman speed, endurance, agility, and reflexes, leather-like skin, and advanced healing abilities. But this is the big one. And he can psionically affect probability fields, which, when his motives are pure, causes good luck for him. I don't know. Long shot. I mean, the hollow bones and the superhuman speed, that makes sense. But like just the lucky super lucky man doesn't seem like such a great superhero power. Oh, man. Why do I always get in the line that goes slower than the line you get in, long shot? Well, Bucky, that's the benefit of being a superhero. And with great power comes great responsibility. Wow, Longshot, I bought a scratch-off lottery ticket. Can you scratch it off? Sure, Bucky, here you go. Up, oh, one free ticket. Wow, Longshot, you sure are super. You think the Eagles can win the Super Bowl? Not without wins, Bucky. There are some things even a superhero can't do. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, like I said, lame superhero. But there's a real superhero with super luck who is in charge. He has good fortune on his side, and his name is Vladimir Putin. Let's just think about how lucky this guy is. Anytime there's been a challenger to Vladimir Putin, something happens to befall the guy. So Vladimir Putin was uh, ran for president of Russia in 2004. And what luck! In that election, one of his challengers in February, Ivan Ribkin, disappears for four days under mysterious circumstances. Then he shows up at a Moscow airport disoriented and haggard after being in the Ukraine. The CNN account of his having gone missing at the time was this. Let me read it to you. 
The explanation triggered sniggers and innuendo in broadcast media in Russia, where the common explanation, he's gone missing, is a euphemism for a man on a prolonged drinking binge or romantic escapade. Yeah, well, in his case, it was also a euphemism for getting drugged and kidnapped by federal agents and threatened if he continued on in the campaign, which he didn't. So I would say Putin got pretty lucky that happened to the opponent. Then in 2008, Dmitry Medvedev was president, and then he stepped down and he decided to give way, as luck would have it, to Vladimir Putin. Then the 2012 Russian election, also a time of great, great fortune for Putin. There was uh, one opposition candidate, Edvard Limonov's candidacy. He was, it was denied because, you know, the signatures weren't right. And then another opposition candidate, Grigory Yavlinsky, who's really the main opposition figure. He was endorsed by Gorbachev and he was anti-corruption and his party controlled 10% of the seats in parliament. But he got so unlucky. The guy screws up his signature too. The authorities found too many spelling errors on the signature sheet. So the guy's not a candidate against Putin. I don't know. Maybe Yavlinsky was the lucky one because Yavlinsky is still alive. Think about the number of Putin enemies, luckily enough for Putin, who came down with a case of the murdered. There was Litvinenko and Magnitsky, or uh, the opposition figure Vladimir Karamurza, who only came down with a case of the attempted murdered, though he also was hit with a case of the confirmed poisoned. And now, Vladimir Longshot Putin is at it again. We can't confirm that he has hollow bones, or that his skin seems leathery, but what luck, oh what luck, the man who was to be his main opponent in this presidential election also been disqualified. Alexei Navalny is rich, He's super motivated, he's charismatic, he's very critical of Putin, and he's not allowed to run. What are the chances? 12 of the 13 members of the election commission decided, and I assume this decision was signed correctly and all their names were spelled right, decided that Navalny's suspended sentence in a fraud case precluded him from running. That fraud case, by the way, international observers say is, uh, you know, cooked up and bullshit, but Navalny cannot run. Now, I just want you to know, it wasn't the elk incident, as reported on this show. The All-Russia Society of Nature Protection suspected Alexei Navalny of poaching because they saw him holding a dead elk out of season. Now, I ask you, what are the chances that an opposition candidate would have so much baggage, so much to potentially disqualify him for a run? I don't know, maybe it's Russia that lucked out, not having to consider a man so reckless, so feckless, apparently committed to making Russia so elkless. And there's another reason why Putin got lucky, why he, uh, why he dodged this bullet, just by pure chance, circumstance, fortune. There's the bald, hairy theory of Russia leadership. Do you know this? In Catholicism, they say after a fat pope, a skinny pope. Well, in Russia, it's bald, hairy. Khrushchev, bald, Brezhnev, hairy. It goes back to the czars. Nicholas I, bald, Alexander II, hairy. Yeah, they killed him anyway. And Putin, as you know, not just his, his chest on a horse, but his pate, bald. And Alexei Navalny, he's got a nice head of hair on him. So I got to say, if Putin didn't have almost super heroic luck, he might be in trouble. The luckiest guy of all in all of Russia is hairless Vlad. And now, with the 2018 election, it will be the first time that lucky Vlad is running where the man in the White House is okay with everything he's doing, of all the luck.
And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname is the just producer who embodies the theory after a producer with moderate to severe plexoriasis, a producer with severe to moderate plexoriasis. Mary Wilson, producer in Abstentia, is regretted having prepaid Expedia, only to find out that almost all the museums in Abstentia are closed for the holidays, and the famed Abstentia Chorus is touring a neighboring area, Extremis. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, just got a shit ton of frankincense for the holiday. The gist, it's a special week of programming. After our look at the Hobby Lobby today, tomorrow we take aim at America's largest educational toy store, Zany Brainy. Just how brainy is it? And then on Friday, 7-Eleven and their association with disgraced actor Jeremy Piven. All this week on The Gist. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. And since I was speaking about social media during the show, I have a Twitter feed. It's Pesca M-I. Maybe you follow me, but do you follow The Gist? It's a lovely, lovely Twitter feed, at Slate Gist. Please do so. We'd love to have you.